when you're stupid, you do evil things. But you, nobody thinks they're evil. Hitler didn't think he was evil. Oh, well, he didn't. He didn't think it was evil. He just he thought he's doing the right thing for Germany. I trying to improve. You know, what, you, you don't fight you, that are battle. Are you saying there then Hitler? He just killed all those millions of people out of stupidity. Yeah. Really? I I you I've don't learned. think you don't think that was a conscious effort? Evil. The word evil has a moral quality that's tied to religion. I'm pulling the religion out of it and saying, what in their brain made them do this? It's stupidity. That's one so that Hitler, any of us could so look Hitler at. So Hitler killed people because he was stupid. Yes. Wow, that that's unique. That is that is definitely unique. Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here is your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show number 71 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today joins us from the road. Paul, (laughs) welcome to You Are the Guest. Hello, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. And you're one of our rare in-person interviews. You were a listener that wrote into mm-hmm. the show and was traveling on by, and, and we made the connection to come by the your the guest studios and record the show live. I appreciate you doing that. I got to see the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and I can just tell everybody that you're, you're telling the truth. It's a beautiful town. Well, thank you very much. Paul, tell me your story. Well, I have a podcast called Third World American. Uh, www.thirdworldamerican.com. And my goal is to travel the country for a year researching the reality of poverty, the wealth gap, and debtors' imprisonment. Uh, The goal is to try to understand what the situation really is and what the causes are in order to find solutions. I believe we seek solutions for these before we understand the problems. Um, However, I don't have any kind of budget, so I'm living the life of a third-world American as I travel and at present, the, the tour is kind of stalled. That's why I'm passing by uh, Fort Dodge. I'm going up to stay with friends in Minnesota and try to make some more money and uh, get the show back on the road, as it were. And the uh, thesis of the Third World American is that the United States of America is in decline and it's becoming a third world nation. And uh, I grew up loving this country very much, and I would like to you know, do what I can to prevent that. And throughout the conversation, what I want to do is I really want to explore this topic with a good, honest, and direct conversation. And and part of the, the I think the thing that I realized, and I shared this with you before we started, which is in person you you seem as a different person, <laughs> and on your podcast you seem really angry. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to bring out the true person that you are in this interview, and and hopefully I'm going to be able to do that. For our listeners, let's talk about one thing, and that is your situation. Because when people from a distance look at your situation, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that goes through their mind is, well, why doesn't he just get a job? Oh, I hate that question. <laughs> so for those listeners that are thinking that, mm-hmm. what would you like to tell them? Well, to, to say just get a job, it's one of those kind of cliches 
that people use for people who are poor or homeless. What they don't understand is that the ability to get a job anywhere, but my experience is in the United States, the ability to get a job that supports you in any meaningful way, and particularly a job that allows you to get ahead so that you can save for retirement, grow your family, or what have you, it's contingent upon having some resources to begin with. Um, it's, it's a direct parallel. It's proportional. So therefore, if you have a lot of money and a lot of resources, you have, for instance, the ability to create better resumes. You can do it on better paper. You can do creative things to get people's attention and make yourself stand out. But if you walk in unshaven and you haven't been able to shower because you live on the streets, um, the only job you're going to get is something that may give you enough to help you continue that misery for another day, but you're not going to get out of it from that. So just get a job sounds good on paper, but um, and you can get a job. Anyone can get a job pretty much just to feed themselves. But if you want to have a life worth living, that's what America is supposed to be about. You work hard and you move upward. That's what's not happening anymore, and that's the situation um, that I'm in at present. In other words, if I could summarize you work hard and then you have an expendable income above the necessities is kind of the American dream or the, or the great life, correct? Well, if you live in a more, I don't, I don't want to say primitive, but if you live in a, a society that is not as industrialized, not as uh, materialistic as ours, you can acquire just enough income from selling fruits and vegetables at a market to sustain your family, perhaps. But you're not seeking anything greater. And more important, there's nobody who's going to come out of nowhere and demand more from you. But in the United States, um, you have people who are constantly raising your taxes, who are slapping you with fees. Um, every time you want to get a vehicle so you can get a better job that's a little further away, well, you need insurance, you need the vehicle, you need a warranty, you need a smog check, um, taxes. I mean, there's there's in America, if you just sit at one income level that's sustaining you now, you have no idea if one year later other people are going to slap you with something that costs you money. You could get sued. You don't know. How is this situation different in America than, say, another industrial country such as Australia? Well, I I mean, I'll be honest. I've communicated with a lot of people from other countries to try to answer that question, but without having being there, you know, I'm, I'm speaking mainly from American experience. My understanding, though, is that America has a, a, a there's a cultural difference here, and there's a technological difference, and they both have a big impact. Uh, the cultural difference is that we are just inundated with um, marketing that tells us, and television and media, and even the news, makes you want to purchase things, makes you want to spend money you don't have, and makes you want to use a credit card if you don't have the money for it, or a student loan if you don't have that, or somehow to pay for things without your income whereas back in the 50s people paid for everything with their income whereas now they buy they they used to live on their income now they buy everything with debt has there ever been a time in america where we haven't had poverty i seriously doubt it and do you ever see it going away no not poverty but involuntary poverty i think can be alleviated you know, it's like the homeless issue. There are people who are homeless who want to be homeless. They're not the ones I'm trying to help. They're already where they want to be. I'm trying to help people who don't want to be homeless, and they work, work, work to get out of it, and all they do is get abuse and humiliation and suffering one indignity after another because the, they're treated just like the ones who don't want to leave homelessness, and it's, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And I see that as a very important 
classification because mm-hmm. it, sometimes when people talk about poverty or the homeless, they just they lump it all in. So right. it's very important that uh, I think that you've classified that, that you're really trying to help those people who want to be helped because the, there are people that are really just wallowing in their own misery. Sure, sure there are. Um, there's, there is a subset of the homeless that do have substance abuse problems or mental illnesses. You have to wonder, though, do they really want to be homeless? Or Here's something that was interesting I just read in a paper in San Diego that isn't stated very often. People are homeless because they're poor, not because they're drunk or they're on drugs. And, you know, I was homeless in Lawrence, Kansas for five years back in the late 90s. And one thing I realized as I watched the newspapers, and I even ran for public office, so I knew a lot about what was going on in terms of politics and law and order, the crimes being committed in Lawrence were not being committed by homeless people. Okay, the, drugs, the drug dealers had a lot of money, so they lived in nice places. They drove nice cars. They didn't have jobs. The homeless did have jobs. The homeless worked, but the drug dealers did not. The people who were beating their wives, they weren't homeless. See, all the crime that we see, you know, Las Vegas just passed a law against feeding the homeless in public places. Well, how can you, how can you, we need a name like racism that applies to homelessness, you know, I really, and maybe even poverty, because for some reason we have this, this fear and hatred at some points for the poor and the homeless, and we do lump them all together, and we shouldn't. There's a different situation. It's a different story for every one of those people out there. You've talked about the decline in the state of decline. So mm-hmm. to have a decline, we've had had a peak somewhere. Where is that peak in American history? I believe it was, it, there's two peaks, I think. One would be after Reconstruction, after the Civil War. Most people would disagree with me because they're so tied to materialism that they don't see having a homestead as being the American dream. Most people would probably say the 1950s following World War II. Um, the reason I disagree with the 50s so much, it was definitely better. It was a peak, but it was a fake peak. Not absolutely fake. It just wasn't as stable as everyone thought it was. But people were living off their income. They were not in debt. The credit cards were not out yet. So it was a very, very good situation. Um, however, in my opinion, the Great Depression never ended at all. I, I really think it never ended. The, the actual causes of it are still there, and it's all corporate the corporate corporations have just revamped the way that they've enslaved people. It's no longer uh, slavery before the Civil War. It's now corporate slavery. And you're free to walk and you're free to get another job if you want. It'll be the same thing, but you're free. One thing that, that puzzles me, though, when you, when you talk about the time after Reconstruction as being a peak, we had a, a lot of enslaved people at that time who were free, but we're also in some dire straits economically. And when you talk about poverty, in many cases, we've never had a peak. The slavery today is very, very similar in principle. Um, it's a better form of slavery. If you were, if you were a slave master in the um, revolutionary times, you had to physically restrain your slaves. You had to feed them. You had to take, if they got sick, they couldn't work in your fields unless you cared for them, their health and everything. Um, you had to worry about them revolting. You had, you had to discipline them with whips and things. It was a hard life for a slave master back there. Today, the CEOs, um, but, but what about they, the just, slaves? they just sit back and, but, and sleep while the slaves have to find their own health care and their own food and their own everything. But, but if you're saying that it was hard for the slave master, what about the slaves? 
slave slavery is slavery to me. I mean, the thing is, people. We, but we but see those, everything. Those, those were people. It's better today in the sense that we have freedom of movement. But the thing is, if you have other ties that bind you, you know, freedom is the most precious thing. And when you asked about peaks, I was speaking in terms of freedom, not economics, because economics derives from freedom. So the peaks of freedom were after Reconstruction when people were the most free to get lands and to travel and to migrate and to set up communities and families on their own homesteads. The 50s, it was more corporate, but they had more freedom. They had more job stability. That is where it gives you opportunity is freedom. I'm not saying everybody would be rich, but you still have to work in order to make in order to be prosperous. But the thing is, when you're a slave in the 1700s, you couldn't. You're working, someone else is benefiting from your labor. That's a horrible thing. That's why slavery is bad. Right. But that's what's going on today. People are working, and the fruits of their labor goes everywhere but to them. But It's the same thing. Well, it it can't be considered the same thing, because there, there is one thing which is called involuntary social acceptable slavery, which what we had in the early part of our country right and then we have what can be classified as voluntary enslavement if you talk about economics Mm -hmm. to be able to get a loan you do have to voluntarily sign a paper you do have to voluntarily buy something or purchase something or agree to something where they didn't have that back in the early century so How voluntary is it really, though? I mean, we're all products of our society. We're products of our upbringing. It's the nature versus nurture question. If if you grow up and you are told that you will never amount to anything unless you have a college education, but you grew up in the ghetto, how do you get that education? Now, looking at the numbers game, there will be people who get scholarships and they find other ways to pay for it. But a lot of them have no choice in, in, you know, using that word, no choice but to take out student loans. The instant you do that, you are a slave. You're a slave to a horrible master. I mean, someone like Sally Mae, which, I mean, you, that goes beyond you're not, credit you're card not, companies even. For example, you are not bound to go to college. No, you're not. But socially, you are told that is what you must do. You see what I mean? If It's just like the marketing convinces so many people that they have to wear their hats backwards and they have to get tattoos and but, pierce. But people choose to go to college. It's a choice, but the word choice is a strange thing. How free no, are we really? But it's still a choice. It's, it's, I'm still free to say well, I don't want to go to college. Or, for example, in, in my situation, my choice was to go to community college. Or I know a lot of people who chose not to go to college and just were able to go into the workforce from high school. Mm-hmm. That was their choice. And so when you get to that situation where you're accepting of those choices, then you can also take a look at, okay, am I structured in in my my problems or my situations because of the choices I made or is it because of uh, something else beyond my control and most of the time it's it's a choice if you if you it's a choice but I mean you're, you're kind of getting into semantics again you see we especially in America we have a habit of seeing everything through our eyes in our time we don't see things the way that other countries see them other cultures other times have seen them and We've been told, just like we've been told you must go to college to get a good job, we've also been told things like, well, you are the sum 
sum total of your choices and your decisions. Well, you integrate that and you, you start to believe it like a religion, anything that you hear all the time growing up. But look at what a choice or a decision is. You can only evaluate it in hindsight. Of course, if you come to a fork in the road, you have to go one way or the other. But why is it always that after you take the fork, if it goes well, nobody says anything. If it goes badly, everyone says, why didn't you take the other fork? You know, I mean, it's this. It's like used as a weapon. It's used as a semantic weapon against people. I don't know anybody who just consciously makes a bad choice or a bad decision. You know, I, I have two forks in the road. One of them's on fire, and the other one looks like Eden. I think I'll walk into the fire. People don't do that. They make the best decision they can with the information they have available, and quite often they get burned if the information they don't have is that other people are waiting on the sidelines to jump them. And that's what the corporations and the information society and the marketers are doing to people. They're just hiding in the shadows and jumping them. But it's still a choice. Well, it's a choice, but, I mean, you have to do something. I mean, you can't not make a choice. You'll just stand there at the fork and never go anywhere. Or you can choose another path. I mean, you can... For example, with credit cards, mm-hmm. I, I know that, that the credit card companies do prey upon people that, uh, that don't know any better mm-hmm. in that way. But at the same time, what the credit card companies will say is it, it's still a choice. And, and I do have to agree with them to that, that point. That you, you can choose to be in debt. Um, you can also choose not to. But do people understand the consequences? But that word, again, you're using the word choice in a way that's very narrowly defined. You know, um, but why would you want to broaden it? Because, it, again, a choice and a decision only makes sense if you have complete and accurate information and you have to have the resources to implement the decision that you make. Because any time you make a choice where someone else, a third party, can come out and change the outcome without your knowledge, either because you didn't have enough information beforehand. Um, For instance, when you take out a credit card, you think, well, I'm honest, I work for a living, so if I get behind, I'm sure they'll work with me and I'll be fine. But then you get to that point and you find out, no, they don't. They immediately report it to the credit bureaus. They start harassing you. They start harassing you at work. Well, you didn't have proper information from the beginning to make a good decision. So to me, decision and choice are things that we look at in hindsight, and that's just an American phenomenon. We have this need to analyze everything and to look for blame and fault instead of just realizing that we're all in the same boat. Every human who's ever lived makes decisions, makes choices, and they do the best they can. And some people learn from from bad experiences better than others, but we're all different. You know, you can't sit there and say because you made this or that choice, if it wasn't a just inherently stupid choice, you shouldn't, I mean, why be so hard on them? I mean, we're all just human. But part of the, the problem is that there has to be a distinction between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And there is, there is a distinction between right and wrong. Sure. There's a distinction between good and evil. Depending how you define, I guess, yes. Well, well let, me, let me ask you this then. What would you consider bad or evil? You know, I used to see, when I was, back when I was kind of uh, a lot more religious, I viewed evil in moral terms, but I now view evil more in terms of human stupidity. Uh, If you're talking about bad decisions, I mean, I would agree in in that respect. Someone who's, when you're stupid, you do evil things, but nobody thinks they're evil. Hitler didn't think he was evil. Oh, he didn't. He didn't think he was evil. He just, he thought he's doing the right thing for Germany. I I think he's evil, but what I see is someone who did something really, really stupid. Trying to improve, you know, but, you, you don't fight are, that are battle. Are you saying there that Hitler, he just killed all those millions of people out of stupidity? Yeah. 
Really? I, I've, you, don't I've think, learned, you don't think that was a conscious effort? Evil, the word evil has a moral quality that's tied to religion. I'm pulling the religion out of it and saying, what in their brain made them do this? It's stupidity. That's a fundamentally bad decision. That's one so that Hitler, any of us could so look Hitler at. So Hitler killed people because he was stupid? Yes. Wow, that, that's unique. That is, that is definitely unique. Um, well, I mean, what's Saddam the, but what's, Hussein, he was stupid. He was stupid. What's the alternative, though? Kim, the the Kim only Jong, alternative is Kim Jong-il is stupid. He's starving his people. He's stupid. What's the alternative? The alternative is that you're possessed by the devil or that there's some big war between God and the devil going on inside of you. Okay, and now there may be, but all I can do is deal with what I can actually see and experience and evaluate. And what I'm seeing is people who do not think properly. They don't process information correctly, and they make, like you're saying, decisions that are just fundamentally bad. That's but, different but than I somebody that, getting a credit card when they're 17 because they're told they should. But see, I think that, that people can be smart and evil. I think, I think that's, that, oh, comes yeah. with, that comes with deception. That comes with cunning. And Hitler certainly was not stupid. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't. I should clarify that. I don't see stupidity as the opposite of intelligence. You can be smart and stupid. Stupid to me means that you do not process information properly. It's. See, I'm a computer programmer. I was so. I, I kind of derived this whole theory from that. And um, when you don't process information correctly, and you know. With all due respect to listeners who are George Bush fans, I don't feel he processes information correctly, which is where a lot of his information comes from. So a lot of people say he's stupid. Well, he's president of the United States. He's not stupid in any sense of being retarded, but he is stupid. He makes really dumb decisions. And it's the same thing. You know, those are, those are the kind of decisions that get 3,000 people killed, plus hundreds of thousands in Iraq. That's the kind of thing that Hitler did. He made... This is fundamentally dumb decisions. So he's a very smart man, but if you don't process information correctly, it's like having a supercomputer where the programming is bad. You're still going to get garbage in, garbage out. But see, I, I don't think here's where we'll disagree. Maybe we should leave it okay. at, at here. So I don't believe that Hitler or evil people are stupid people. I think they're morally corrupt. And, and to me, that's a difference. Well, I disagree just because morality brings in a spiritual realm that's outside my experience. I can only deal with the physiology and the biology of the body and what's going on inside the brain, and that comes under the realm of stupidity, not some moral issue of good or evil. Well, mor morality, though, is a fundamental of right and wrong. I mean, most people know the difference between right and wrong, or they know that there is a right and they know there is a wrong. They know it in terms of what works. It's a practical thing. Right. America does things, again, America does things different than they've done in history. If you look at other no, cultures, well, the you, way they deal with things. Well, if you ask the, people in, in China, mm -hmm. you know, do you know the difference between right and wrong? They will have their version of what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So as humans, we know fundamentally the difference between right and wrong. And right and wrong is a choice. Yes, but right and wrong, what you define as right and wrong has a lot of practicality to it. And so it becomes a matter of how well do you think. Are you a good thinker? Then you can evaluate. For instance, if, if you kill somebody, it's considered wrong. Why? Because you've instantly given, you've taken away all moral, if you will, reasons for anyone else not to kill you. 
The, the best way to prevent other people from killing you or having all society descend into chaos is to not kill other people. It's a practical thing. That's what a smart person does. It's not a moral thing. I mean, but you, it's so instinctive that you realize that. So we, we've turned it into why this can't, morality. Why can't it be both? It could be, but again, I can only deal with what I actually witness. Otherwise, it's just all hypothetical. You know, I, which God do I choose? Which devil but, but do I choose to, to be responsible But you for don't me? need to be religious to know that murder is wrong. Right. Right. Yeah, but for obvious reasons. If I kill you right now, then I can't, I have, when your family comes after me for revenge, there's nothing I can say to stop them. That's why I well I why, don't, don't want to kill you. But, why, I mean. <laughs> right. but the other thing is, why would you assume that they would want to kill you back? Because it's human nature, revenge. Why do you think they just hang Saddam in such a barbaric manner? You know, it's revenge. That wasn't justice. Or you don't think that hanging Saddam was justice in the form that he was hung? Did you see it? Yeah, it, it wasn't like he was Mother Teresa. No, but uh, that was that was just pure. I'm not talking from his perspective. I mean, from the perspective of the people in that room, they were taunting him. They they were. It was just pure revenge. It was just yeah. It was just hatred. Well, the yeah. thing is, well, well, well what? But look at him. I mean, let me ask you this question: If the tables were turned, and those people were being hung by Saddam, do you think Saddam would give them? The benefit of the doubt and say, oh, well, let's make sure these guys have their, you know, a really good last day. No, because he did those very same things probably to those people's relatives. Sure. For Saddam to be called a few names before he's hung, hey, you know, he's lucky. No, it's not just the name calling. I mean, if you look at the whole situation compared to, say, an American execution, there was no dignity to it. He was brought up the platform. Well, was, People are running was, and milling about. Why would they there put be the, dignity to hanging Saddam Hussein? <laughs> well, my point is that, as far as I know, that's how they hang everybody. That's their system. Okay, we see it as offensive. With us, they try to have. Some, I didn't see it as offensive at all. I just said, you know what? If you kill that many people and you're that ruthless. Then you know if you get a few name calling on the last few minutes of your days on Earth, a big deal. Well, I think you're framing the question in terms of like my opinion toward Saddam. I don't think Saddam was a good person. He was a bad person. He did bad things. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't set up some pretense of American justice or American democracy style justice over there because that execution does not fit in any way, shape, or form with the way that we do things. And it shouldn't because they are a different culture. So what I'm trying to point out is, are we supposed to say they're evil because rather than going through all the procedure, the appeals, where you don't have judges saying, we're going to hang that man, we're going to kill him, and you can't stop us, which is what their Supreme Court equivalent said. You know, we wouldn't have that in America. We do it more dignified. We try to, we try our best to make sure it's all just and done well. And Well, the other thing is they, they didn't do that. They but, don't have anybody on death row either. Right, but I'm, what I'm saying is that they you know, did it totally different. They didn't different. have to wait to hang him. I mean, it's like we all know how the story is going to end. What you said, I believe, was that the, the hanging of Saddam uh, was, to summarize it, not dignified. It wasn't dignified for the people doing the hanging. It's, it's, this isn't about Saddam. Saddam was executed. He, he was convicted. He, he, di- he did horrible things. And he was. The dignity comes from the people who survive. I mean, what if, what if replace Saddam Hussein in that video with Timothy McVeigh? 
and ask yourself, would I be proud of America if those were Americans who, who ran that execution? I would say no. But the way we executed McVeigh, insofar as it's possible with capital punishment at all, we tried to inject dignity in there, and we tried to prove that we're better than him when we executed him. That's not what I saw with Saddam. Okay. But, but I'm okay with that. Well, everybody's different. I'm yeah, just, a I lot mean, of people I saw mean, that as a very bad execution, and all, I'm, all I was trying to get at is that they have a different way of doing things. I might right, not see and, it. And how they did it, in, in my viewpoint, was, abs- was okay with it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with it. Would, would I I'd be embarrassed if they did that to somebody here in Iowa? Absolutely. But for Saddam Hussein... They're calling him a few names that he got off easy. Well, but, but they do it for everybody there. That's the difference. Well, but I don't, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm trying to point out the way that morality and ethics is, is culturally biased. We see things one way, and other cultures see things other way. And a lot of the questions you're asking are, with all due respect, I think they're coming through a very narrow filter of America 2006 viewpoint. And you, you need a broader historical and cultural perspective um, in order to not be so condemning of people's choices and decisions and realize that everyone makes the best decision they can. Well, Those I, people taunting hey, Saddam made the best decisions they could at the time, and I, in I, hindsight, we're condemning them for I that. I realize that within our context here that there are people who make good decisions, people that make bad decisions, but they're choices. And the choices that our early American forefathers made in starting this country which was slavery and enslavement of a human being is definitely not a choice we would make here today no and so all i'm saying is that throughout american history here's where i'm going there's another bit of my madness here all right is through the history of this country there are people that have had to make choices or make decisions based upon what they thought was good for them or thought was good for the country or good for mm-hmm. society at that time. Okay. And so what I'm trying to get through with your tour is the choices of how people can make a difference or, or maybe change a viewpoint that they have uh, on the poor or impoverished, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, the goal. So, the- so what can they do? What can they do? Well, the f- number one is with any problem that needs a solution is understanding the problem, and that begins with awareness. So you need awareness, and my show is intended to create awareness. I want to make it, um, it – it's kind of an in-your-face show, I'll admit that. And as I spoke with you earlier, I would like to tone it down in terms of anger and such. But when you're talking about something that makes you angry – um, it either makes me angry or it makes me cry. It's just it's it's that bad. I believe it is our it's our modern atrocity. It is our slavery. It is our imprisonment of Japanese Americans. It, it it is this generation's shame. And 200 years from now, when they look and they see what corporations have done enslaving people this way, you can compare it to slavery in the 1700s. But again, in hindsight. It was still an atrocity. I, I can't nitpick about the fact that human slavery in the 1700s was horrible. It was. It was. I wouldn't want to be in that situation, and I would free any slaves that I inherited. I think it's a terrible thing. But I'm dealing with today, and today I can only look for the parallels. And the parallels are the other people binding you, other people limiting your options so that your choices and your decisions are not what they would be if you were, say, rich. 
if you're if if you're rich or you at least have a certain amount of money, your number of options increase dramatically. Well, you're making a choice, but you have more options to choose from. So how can you take somebody who has such limited options when they're poor, or certainly if they're homeless, and complain about the decisions they made? They they didn't have the full realm of options that you had to begin with. Let me throw out another idea here, or at least another off ramp, and that is from a show I did earlier back in December about credit cards. Yes. We talked about how the credit card companies go after people, especially right out of high school, and the fact that they really aren't educated within the school systems. And we, we talk about freedom, and we talk about mm-hmm. maybe knowledge is power. And if we want to stop poverty or at least eliminate it, for, especially for those people that get themselves into to a hole, maybe we can say that part of the solution is getting that information out to them while they're in the public school systems, while they're sitting in front of the teachers, before they get themselves into debt. And how many more people would we save from poverty or a life of economic hardship we're in complete agreement on that. I believe our, our education system needs a complete revamp, period. Period. Why, why don't we teach children how the corporate entity works? How do, why don't we teach who the 50 largest corporations are and what they own and what they control and how much money the CEOs make and how much money the janitors make? Why don't we ever talk about something that's that fundamentally important to your ability to survive in our society to the point where people can die of old age without ever knowing that if they didn't seek it out themselves. Yes, our high schools should be teaching everything there is to know about credit cards. This is a capitalist society. That means that those who have capital have power and opportunity, and they don't teach anything in schools about that. Nothing. It, it, it's unbelievable, and it's no wonder so many people get thrown into debt and poverty. And Yes, I agree completely. If you want to nip it where it starts, that is a great place to start. And that's one thing I want to do is I wanted to get a lot of um, – I wanted to be able to speak at high schools and colleges and such like that. Paul, let's go ahead and, and get into the Ask Bill 3 segment. And this is where I turn the microphone over to you or the table as it would be, <laughs> and you get to ask slash grill me on three questions of your choice. So so here's here's your chance for payback if you thought I've been, been tough or throw some Speaking some tough of questions. revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I tried so hard to think of how to get... Because I knew you were going to grill me. You're good at grilling people, putting them on the spot. You did that with the armchair president. Yeah. I, I always wanted to do that very same thing. And um, but, but you let, grilled him pretty hard. Let, let me ask you this. Have you felt that I'm unfair? No, no. That's what's great about what you do. I mean, you. that's what the mass media does not do enough. They don't grill people. Or if they do, they're doing it so biased that there's no point. It's just an attack. It isn't a, an attempt to clarify anything. So, no, I think you do it very well. Well, well thank you. One thing that I, I, I liked about our discussion is that number one is that I learned something from it, too. Because sometimes I'll ask the question, and then after hearing it or hearing your response, it's like, okay, I've changed my viewpoint. Even though maybe the listener doesn't get that closure because they say, well, that's just the way that, that – 
that Bill thinks and, mm-hmm. and, and the like. And the other thing I like about this conversation is at least I get to look you straight in the eye <laughs> and ask you those same questions. So you can't accuse me of being chicken or saying, well, you know, he never asked that question to somebody to their face. That's true. I can, I can verify that he will ask you these questions to your face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry, we, I'm kind of sorry we got into the poverty so much. I was hoping to do a little comedy or something. Because like you said, I'm very angry and very uh, negative in the show, and I, in third world American show. But it's because the topic's negative. If, I've always said it all along. If this wasn't an issue that I felt so much about, I would either be a stand-up comic or a drummer in a rock and roll band. And I would just be having fun. <laughs> and believe me, I, the sooner we get rid of poverty, the sooner I can start doing that. Amen. All right, questions for you. In America, we're good at declaring war on things. We declare war on um, child abuse or um, terror or methamphetamines. They've actually done a good job helping to stop that epidemic. The war on drugs, yes. The war on drugs. They have wars on everything, and yet when it comes to poverty, they do nothing in America. There is no war against poverty. There's no concerted, focused effort against that one thing. They'll stop child predators. They'll stop everything else. They'll stop... They'll stop them from buying cigarettes, but they will not stop them from being living in poverty. Why? Who is they? The Amer- America as a culture, as a, as a political, social culture. This country does not declare war on poverty. It declares war on everything else, but it, it'll sit there and let millions of people live in their own filth and live in third world conditions, in, in ghettos, and it, it does nothing to stop them. Part of that is... Out of sight, out of mind, for the, for the for the most part, that that people don't see it and don't want to see it and don't want to go to those parts of town. And as we talked about earlier, that they're just time poor. They're they're doing other things in their lives. In other words, when people come home from work, they don't come home and say, "Oh, you know, I wonder what I could do in my town to." solve poverty you know it, it is you know the kids are screaming at them they, they they want to do something else they want to enjoy their life and so because of that it really doesn't get top of mind awareness that maybe since you have because because you're in there and, and because it's a big issue for you that maybe we could all agree on that boy you know if we had one thing to change that might be thing to change about the country i think everybody would agree about that but the semantics of it is that you know it's it's just tough to bring about. The other thing is, how do you run a society? How do you tell a society, well, here's what's right or what's wrong? I don't think you can tell a society. For example, uh, maybe if I could give a, a analogy, you can't set up to make a cult movie. Your audience defines that it's a cult movie. Right. Until Americans as a society says, this is something that we no longer want. I don't think that is going to change much, if, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does. Hmm. Next question. Next question. In a presidential election, do you think it is more important when choosing the person you're voting for to look at the candidate themselves or the friends and associates who will form their administration? Ah, um, both. They go hand in hand. But part of the problem is that in most cases, 
the president really doesn't pick their cabinet or their uh, associates until after they're elected. And once they're elected, you really don't know how those people are going to perform until they really get into the job. And so I think that what you have to do is first is that you have to pick the candidate choices A or B, you know, do I want bad or do I want worse, which is sometimes what we've been really given as far as candidates. Yes. I, I've been accused of being more to the right. Well, well, my choices, you know, I can go extreme left or I can go extreme right. You know, nobody's in the middle, which really is, is where I think I am because I think I'm right on some issues, I'm left on some issues. But for the candidates that I've been able to, to choose from, I had to pick one, and I picked the one from the right. So when you evaluate the two candidates, though, I mean, do you, let me phrase it this way, do you actually look at who their friends are and make any assumptions about who the candidate is based on who they associate with? When that is available. Sometimes it's not always available, though. Mm. Let, let, me, let me throw out an example of that. Bill Clinton on his last 72 hours in office. They couldn't wait to get the furniture out of the door. I mean, remember that? They they loaded up all the furniture? Mm -hmm. That's probably why Hillary wants to get back in the office. She wants that (laughs) furniture back. But the other thing is that he started doing all those parties. And what do you bet that those same friends that that, uh, Bill helped out will be there for Hillary here if she starts being really serious about the next term. Okay. May I comment on your comment? Sure, go ahead. That was kind of a trap because I I was trying to find a way to phrase it to see how you interpreted the question. Um, What I'm actually trying to get at is the president is only as competent as his advisors. For instance, when it comes to war, the advisors must get proper intelligence. They must be able to process information correctly. They must not be stupid. If you're going to fight poverty, you must have advisors who, who deal with social services who understand the reality of what's going on. If you're the president of the United States, you have very, very limited knowledge on all the things you must administer as an ex- chief executive. It's up to your cabinet. It's up to your advisors to provide you with the information. They must be reliable, and they must be unbiased. So I was trying to see if you interpreted that question in terms of just how important the administration is to a president, because I think we've become a society who looks at the president as a cartoon character, just a figurehead, and they don't realize that that one person doesn't make these decisions. They have all these other people telling them, giving their opinions, and they make their decision based on those opinions. But the president also doesn't make the laws either. Who makes the laws? Congress. Congress, exactly. Isn't Congress, because they're representing states and representing districts, aren't they voted in locally? Yes. So, really, it is the local voter that has the power, at least has the influence, to get those people in in power so they can make the laws. And if they don't like what they're seeing as far as the laws or the policies... They should be on the phones to their representatives, on the phones to their congressmen, on the phones to their senators, and say, hey, this is wrong. We should be doing something else. But how many actually do that? Very few. That's responsible citizenship, which is another thing they, they do touch on in high school, but they don't. The, the point is, if you have John F. Kennedy 
he could have gotten up there and instead of saying, by the end of the decade, we will be on, uh, send astronauts to the moon and return them safely to the Earth, he could have said, we will build a time machine. If he had bad advisors who told him that was possible, he could have made a ridiculous claim like that. So isn't it possible if you have bad advisors, a president could say, well, my entire environmental uh, platform, my entire environmental policy is going to assume that global warming doesn't exist. I mean, if the president doesn't know anything about science, aren't they relying on advisors to give them the answer of whether or not global warming is real, For just as an example? The advisors, to me, are more important than the president, in a way. While the advisors are important, it's the president in his administration who has the final say. So he has to have at least some sort of working knowledge of whether this is a good decision or a bad decision, or a good choice or a bad choice. Right. Sometimes the president makes the best decision based upon what he has available. Sometimes he doesn't. But one thing that I look at when it comes to the president of the United States is that if I were to look back in my life and take a look at how my life has been changed, improved, either way, good or bad, by the president, I could say that probably it really didn't make that big of a difference. Although I like Ronald Reagan, did he really make that big of a difference in my life? Who knows? You know, I didn't like Bill Clinton. Did he really pull me back all that much? Eh, probably not. Yeah, the, the choices that I made throughout my life and throughout my career probably helped me more than any policy that a president of the United States could make. Now, that may not be true for everybody, but but maybe that is true for the majority of people. That, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. That, see, that's the point I was trying to make, though, is that Eisenhower created the interstate highway system. We've all benefited from that. He made a clear, concrete goal, and it was it was carried out. Kennedy made a concrete goal of going to the moon, which has advanced our science and interest in science enormously. We're not seeing that. And to me, if the president hangs out with people who are extremely biased or they're not very good thinkers, that's what that's the kind of information they're going to be acting on throughout their entire tenure in office. So I think it's extremely important to look at who these candidates associate with because it's kind of, I hate to say it, but it's guilt by association. If they're hanging out with people who will not make fighting poverty an issue, for instance, if they're hanging out with bankers, then do you want them in office if you want poverty solved? But sometimes you have to give the choices time, too. For example, let's talk about Eisenhower. You talked about the interstate. Do you understand why the interstate system was designed? I think so. And it was? <laughs> well, we couldn't... We couldn't um... I, it was one of Eisenhower's passions. We couldn't, we couldn't populate the whole country and distribute and set up communities that were able to I mean you would have you would have a well-developed east coast and a poorly developed west coast without it. No, the the reason why the interstate highway system was designed was to mass evacuate populations in case of a nuclear strike. That's how the that's how the interstate highway system was built. Now, that was the purpose of it. That's the first I've ever heard of that. But well, I'll, I'll believe you. you. Okay, you research that. Okay. You research that. I'll, no, you I'll, might be right. I just I'll I'd never heard that, that before. That's in, o- in other words, 
it was built for this one purpose, but it became this completely different other thing, which is because we didn't have a war and because we didn't have nuclear strikes, well, then it became this ability to go quickly from one area to another. And it, it generated a lot of commerce and generated a lot of people going on trips. And it just through the automobile, it gave people a lot more freedom. Now, some of the other choices that we're faced with today, for example, the question about Iraq. You know, we may not fully realize whether that was a good or bad situation for about another 20 years or 50 years. So, you know, we're, we're trying to say, is this good, is this bad? And, and sometimes a lot of the media will just overanalyze it minute to minute. Um, They're treating it like a football game rather than a war. Right. Here's, here's my analogy to that. When people walk in through their front doorstep every day from work, do they open up the door and say, I wonder how much this house is valued at? I wonder if it went up today. I wonder if it went down today. I wonder if it's worth an extra dollar. What's well, funny is I just left California, and I, I do know people like that. Yeah, well, yeah, but and, and the media sometimes in, in different situations are like that. And you really don't evaluate your house or your evaluation until maybe you lived there for a while. And so we're going to have to live there with these decisions sometimes before we really take a look on whether they were a good choice or a bad choice. Paul, do you want to tell about your nationwide tour and also about your podcast and how people can get involved? Okay, well, the tour, um, you can learn about all you need to know at the website, www.thirdworldamerican.com. That's T-H-I-R-D spelled out. If you go there, you'll see um, information including my flyer that I hand out, a PDF, and um, if you look in the sidebar, there's a lot of information that describes exactly what the tour is about. Basically, my goal is to raise awareness, to travel the country, meet people, and try to really seek the reality, not the media version, the soundbite version. Um, and it may very well be something that I just don't expect or I don't want to see. I'm, I'm keeping an open mind. I'm, I'm willing to admit that it may be poor people's fault. I don't know. I want to know the truth because I can't look for solutions until I know the truth. Um, how people can help is listen to the show, um, advise me. If you do think it's too negative and everything, let me know because I want this to be something that people want to listen to. Um, but write to me either way. Um, I This was meant to be donation-driven, and unfortunately the third World American Mobile died 20 miles from the dealership, so I had to pump the whole funds into fixing that. Right now I, the, the tour is on hold. I'm moving to Minnesota from San Diego which is why I'm able to stop by the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. And um, I'll be working there for a while trying to gain up some more money. But to gain up enough money by working at those kind of jobs for this tour is going to be very difficult. So um, hopefully at one point this show will get enough listeners where it becomes donation-driven. And at that point it will take on a totally different character. It'll be much more uh, interview-oriented and people-oriented. It'll, it'll start to resemble NPR a bit more than just some angry guy. Because I really want to know the truth. And so if, if you want to know the truth too, uh, dear listeners, please uh, put me in your podcatcher. I would just love to have you. Paul, thank you so much for being our guest this week and joining us from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, this week on You Are the Guest. Thank you so much, Bill, and thanks for allowing me into your home. This is, this is a great city, and I really appreciate you having me over. 
If you'd like to be a guest on a future show, just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com. Submit your first name, the town where you live, and a short description on why you'd make a good guest. There is no charge for being a guest, and you'll have the opportunity to share what you think and how the news and events from today affect your life. The show's producers will contact you by email if you're chosen for a future show. Remember that you can listen to the show every day at Coolcast Radio. And of course, we always appreciate your subscriptions at iTunes and Yahoo Podcasts. That concludes this week's edition of You Are the Guest from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.